it's not really a jungle. It's really not a survival of the fittest. It's really not war metaphors. Competition is part of business, but competition is really, I mean, business is far more about creating value for other people. So far more productive metaphors like community, stakeholders, higher purpose. These are better ways to think about business today in the year 2020. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro. And if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Well, folks, here we are, episode 50 of Business for Good podcast. Whether you are a longtime listener or this is your first episode, please know that I am grateful to you and hope you're finding real value in the show. I know I've been extremely inspired by how the guests of Business for Good are using their companies to solve serious world problems, and I hope you have been inspired too. To commemorate this milestone for the podcast, we are going back. How far are we going back? Way back. In fact, Back to the beginning. When this podcast was launched in 2018, the very first guest was Whole Foods Market CEO and co-founder John Mackey. In that episode, we talked about his book, Conscious Capitalism. Well, John has a new book out now, Conscious Leadership, and he joins the podcast for a second conversation, and rest assured, John does not disappoint. In this episode, we cover a wide range of topics. What did John learn from an attempted unsuccessful coup of at Whole Foods to oust him from the CEO spot? Which cultivated meat did Whole Foods Market and John personally take an investment position in? What does John think future generations will think about our treatment of animals? Why does plant-based cheese sell better when it's not located in the dairy section of Whole Foods? Will there be a post-Whole Foods chapter in John's life? Listen on, and all of these questions and more will soon be answered. So without further ado, here's episode 50 with the always insightful Whole Foods co-founder and CEO, John Mackey. John Mackey, welcome back to the Business for Good podcast and congratulations on being the first and still only repeat guest on the show. Gosh, I hope that's not starting a new trend. You've run out of other interesting people to talk to. <laughs> well, I, you know, while you were literally 50 episodes ago, uh, we're now on episode 50, um, and you were the first ever episode of the show, to this day, it remains one of the most popular episodes. So I don't doubt that this one will also be a, a popular one, and, uh, and, and you will make it so. Uh, thank you. I'm good to hear that. All right, so let's get into this new book because hopefully people have already listened to your first interview. If not, definitely go back and listen to it. But, you know, I, I just finished your new book, which I, I found very, very useful. It's called Conscious Leadership, Elevating Humanity Through Business. And, you know, in a lot of business books, uh, people have these uh, self-serving stories about uh, their great successes in business. You start the book grabbing the reader by the throat. There's no quaint story of success at the beginning, but rather you start with a story of how, frankly, some of your most trusted lieutenants at Whole Foods staged a coup and tried to remove you. I don't want to give any spoilers to the book, but obviously you're still the CEO. So the coup was unsuccessful ultimately, but you write that the experience made you a better CEO. So John, just tell us, why did these folks want to oust you and what did you learn from that experience? Well, I don't know really what their motivation of the executive was. I can assume he just wanted my job. He wanted, uh, he wanted more money, more power, uh, hard to say exactly because I can't get into somebody else's head. So I can't really know his motivations. But um, I'd worked with him for 16 years and and I'd considered him a good friend and I trusted him. And so there was a deep sense of betrayal there. Um, a couple of the directors, uh, it's, it's hard to know what their motivations were too. So it's 
in life, it's very hard to know other people's motivations. You can speculate on it, but you don't really know. You can know your own motivations if you're self-aware enough, but it's very hard to know other people's for sure. You can only observe their behavior. You don't exactly always know why they're doing what they're doing. Um, so I can say that I was vulnerable then because Whole Foods had, we'd back, this was back in the, when the, we had the first big internet boom in the late 1990s and Whole Foods jumped in feed first to, and we were doing a site called wholepeople.com and we bought a vitamin company, a mail order vitamin company based in Boulder, Colorado, uh, named uh, Amrion, and we were we were trying to make this kind of an all-inclusive site with with f- whole, f- whole foods supplements. We had a travel site. We were we were selling trips for people. Uh, we were selling spiritual stuff, books, uh, music. We were in our own way, sort of. The idea was that we were trying to uh, the low cost movement, lifestyles of health and sustainability was big back then. And we thought Whole Foods had the best brand in the low cost community. And so the idea was to create a lifestyle uh, website and e-commerce site. And it was a pretty good idea. It was just a, really just ahead of its time. And the technology wasn't very good. It was very expensive. You had to couldn't buy things off the shelf. You had to custom build everything. And we raised money from venture capitalists, and we we got our site up and running. I and mean, we just weren't weren't doing any business. And it was pretty clear to me that we weren't going to do any business for for a long time, probably. And shipping was so expensive. It wasn't cost effective to ship food, for example, because the weight to shipping ratio was was and still is very high to ship jars of things. And uh, so the food wasn't going to work. Supplements worked and that that business uh, was viable business. And we ended up spinning that off and selling that out. But anyway, the, the long and the short of it is uh, my wife and I moved to, to Boulder, Colorado back in 1998, 99, thereabouts. And we were there for about a year. And in that period of time, I wasn't paying much attention to Whole Foods because I was working on the new business and it failed. And I was, so I was very vulnerable. The executive that led the coup was, uh, you know, he was, I, I had him basically leading Whole Foods while I was working on the internet thing. And I guess he, he didn't want to let it go because he liked it. I, I don't, I don't know exactly why, but, uh, anyway, the long and short of it is the coup failed and it was difficult. And we do start off the book telling that story because there's a big board meeting in Florida. And I had sort of a, a spiritual experience uh, before I went into the board meeting because I was touring our stores in Southern, in the Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. And I just was touring around these stores and I just felt so much sense of purpose and so much sense of love and connection with our team members. And it was like, wow, this is like really what I want to do in life. This is what I love the most. This is what I really care about. And I did not really want to lose it. And I realized, you know what, I need to I need to fight for my job and I, I really need to be, and I, I got this awareness, I needed to be a different kind of leader. I needed to be a more loving more spiritually awake, more conscious leader going forward. And so that was, it was a real big wake up call for me. I call it a near death experience because 
in a sense, it was a, it was a near death of me as doing Whole Foods and being the leader of CEO of the company. So that helped me wake up to the importance of my own need to be, to learn and grow and to be a better leader. Uh, and, uh, I did a lot of inner work around that and got some deep insights into who I needed to be, to be a really good leader for Whole Foods and began to work on that. So yeah, that's how we started the book out. And, and that really began my journey in a more conscious way to be a more conscious leader. Instead of just leaving it to chance, I began to do the inner work to transform myself. And that's 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago. So the book that we've written is uh, sort of based on the learnings that I've had, but Carter and and Steve are, are brilliant thinkers and great writers. And, and, uh, and the three of us really wrote the book together and it was really pretty equally shared. Great. And so for those who aren't familiar, it's Carter Phipps and Steve McIntosh, who are both co-authors of the book with you here, uh, which I've read in full. And I really got a lot out of it. I think it's great for folks who run big companies, but for folks who run small companies like myself, there's a lot of uh, value in the book. So I want to dive right into that, John. Uh, Let's just start. You know, you were just mentioning how you wanted to embrace love as a principle of your leadership. And that's a theme throughout the book. So you complain in the book that too many people are who are in business use imagery like a business as like a battlefield, or it's like a jungle out there. And it's really, a you know, we win by forcing other people to lose. And you suggest that it ought to be not a battlefield or a jungle, but that business is really a community and that you should look for win-win-win solutions. So tell us, what does win-win-win mean to you? And what does it look like in the actual world to run a business where you're thinking of the ecosystem as a community rather than as a battlefield? Okay, so let me back up just a little bit to give a little more context. Um, love is really not, love is part of the human condition. It's part of, it's a deep part of what human beings are. It's not, and uh that part of our being is really not particularly welcomed in the workplace. And it's something that we do with our friends and we do with our families, we do with our significant others, our children. Uh, but work is seen as someplace you kind of check that at the door. Or as I say, love is in the corporate closet. And so we're not really allowed or not supposed to be fully human in the workplace. And this is a terrible thing because it's part of the reason business has a bad reputation to so many people. It's part of the reason why people aren't engaged in their work as deeply as they could be because they're leaving a big part of themselves out of the workplace. And we're not talking about love in the sense of romantic love or sexual love or, or eros. We're talking about it from the sense of just caring, compassion, gratitude, generosity, forgiveness, just the full human ability to connect and care about the people that we are around and the people we're working with, the different stakeholders. So the reason we can't do that is because the way we think about business is mostly the business, the the mental model we have of it is hyper-competitive, whether it be war metaphors of... um, of kill or be killed, or we're going to conquer those guys, and uh, we go to the go to the war room and work out our battle strategies, and it's, it's the, the whole language is very you know go motivate the troops. Lots of lots of war metaphors, or they're 
Darwinian metaphors of uh, survival of the fittest, jungle out there, only the paranoid survive. The metaphors of war, the metaphors of Darwinian survival, sports metaphors, they're all hyper-competitive metaphors. And when you're at war, there's no place for love. And if you're trying to survive, there's really no place for love. So the hyper-competitive metaphors is the way we structure reality and the way we think about work and the way we think about business means love is something that gets checked at the door. And those are metaphors that while they're true, they're only partially true. It's not really a jungle. It's really not a survival of the fittest. It's really not um, war metaphors. Competition is part of business. But competition's really, I mean, business is far more about creating value for other people. So far more productive metaphors like community, stakeholders, um, higher purpose. These are better ways to think about business today in the year 2020. And if we begin to think that way, we begin to create the possibility for love in the workplace. And the other thing is that we think love is, it's really a skill. The, the book is in a lot of ways about doing the inner work that you need to do to find a sense of deeper purpose, to lead with love, to practice integrity, to learn how to think win-win-win, to think long-term, innovate, innovation to create value. It's, it's a whole sort of guidebook to having people become a more skillful, more conscious leader. So love is important and it's something because it's a skill, it's something, it, it's, it's an emotion, but it's a lot more than that. And it, it's something that we can practice and get better at. We can practice generosity. We can practice care. We can practice forgiveness. We certainly can practice appreciation. And as we practice these things, and we, we tell you how to, how to practice in each of these areas, we become more skilled and we become more capable of leading with love. And in terms of the win-win-win, what is it? You ask what that is. Win-win-win means, uh, that's a game metaphor, but most of the time the game metaphor people use is win-lose. And we tend to think in sports, there's one team that wins the NBA championship or the Super Bowl or the World Series, and everybody else loses. So it's win-lose with just only a very few winners and a lot of losers. But that's the wrong metaphor for business. Business is a win-win-win game because you have various stakeholders, customers, employees, suppliers, investors, the communities that we're part of, that they're all exchanging or trading with the business for mutual gain. There's not one winner and a bunch of losers. Everybody that's trading with the business is winning because they're trading voluntarily for their own gain. And so there are multiple winners. And so thinking win-win-win is really, it means good for you, good for me, good for all of us. That's the third win. And so when you're thinking win-win-win, you're moving out of the, the binary thinking of good versus evil, winning versus losing, rich versus poor. And you're thinking more about how we can design strategies where everybody that we're that we're trading with is is also winning and we're doing it in a more conscious way. It's like business is more of a system, another metaphor. It's a more of a system that's interdependent. All these stakeholders are interdependent and connected together. And once you understand that, you can begin to manage that system more intelligently, more strategically, so that you're creating value for all of those major stakeholders simultaneously. 
And so we teach you how to do that. It means you have to change the way you think about situations because the win-lose structure is deep in our consciousness. We have to become become aware of it and choose to see the world differently. And as we begin thinking win-win-win, is almost a complete ethical system. You can you can begin to apply that in every situation you're in by asking, okay, how do we do this so that so that you're getting what you want, you're winning, I'm getting what I want, I'm winning, and we're doing it in such a way that the larger community that we're part of is also winning. Um, so y- you can do that, and once you begin to think that way. You give your mind, your creative mind, permission to create strategies where that happens. Because if you don't begin to try to change your thinking, you'll always come up with ways that you can win, but you may not be thinking about anybody else besides yourself. And uh, that's not as good a strategy in the world, the world today, in my opinion. It certainly doesn't lead, lead to... Because as you create value for other people, business is about creating value for other people. And as we do that, then uh, then they're going to want to trade with us more. They're going to be happier. And so once you see the connection of all these stakeholders together with the business, uh, you can begin to have all of them win, all of them succeed, all of them flourish. And then the business has an upward spiral of greater and greater success. Speaking of greater success and creating value, um, you know, you very famously created an enormity of value for Whole Foods shareholders when Amazon uh, acquired the company a few years ago for nearly $14 billion. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. But first, you know, you ran the company for over 40 years. Like if you could have talked to the John who, you know, 40 years ago is in his early 20s and told him that at some point, this would be worth $14 billion and somebody was going to buy this company. What do you think that that earlier 20s John would have said? Well, knowing what a smart ass I was in my early 20s, I would have probably said, yeah, you're full of shit. You don't know what you're talking about. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you're crazy. Or I would have said, that's impossible. And I, and if, and I would have thought, I can't possibly do that. So I'm going to I better get out of here. I better. I, I, don't, I don't want to fail on that scale. Uh, so, um, so let, let, let's let's just talk about that then, because you know it's amazing like how often people underestimate their own capabilities, and you, you know, in in this particular case, uh, you know, you really went through the whole process, right? Starting this tiny company, facing all types of adversity, growing it, eventually going public, then getting acquired. And uh, I was really unaware. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure it had been reported, but I was at least unaware of the circumstances around the acquisition. But you talk about it in the book, and I don't want to give too much away. But you know, you mentioned that you're under pressure from activist shareholders, and that you were seeking an acquirer. You talked to Warren Buffett. You talked to Albertsons. Then eventually. Eventually, you know, you get married to Jeff Bezos and, and Amazon. So just briefly, if you could tell people what was the problem that you were trying to solve that you were seeking an acquirer? And then, you know, how's it been? It's been a few years now. So uh, how's it been? So for the record, we weren't seeking an acquirer. That's inaccurate. We were seeking a win-win-win solution to a problem we had. We had a shareholder activist. One of the problems about being a public company is you're vulnerable when you have a when you have a, a downturn in your stock price or your your sales your earnings aren't as strong, your stock price can drop significantly, and that brings in short term shareholder activists who uh, whose one and only goal is to get that share price up uh, so that they can sell 
their investment for a quick profit. And, and by quick, usually less than a year is what they're thinking. So Jana Partners took an eight, they bought 8.8% of Whole Foods. And uh, they, well, I met with them and they basically said, we're going to get rid of your board of directors. We're going to bring a new board in and we're going to fire the management team and we're going to put the company up for sale. So you could save us a lot of time and effort if you would just go along with that. <laughs> <laughs> and they were they were basically going around to the investment community around Wall Street and they had a whole uh, PowerPoint presentation that, you know, frankly made Whole Foods wasn't a, it wasn't fully truthful. It made us look very bad depending on the time parameters they put out. And you take the stock at an all-time high and you take it where it is then. It looks like, well, they're really not managing this company very, very well, but, but they neglect to point out that the stock had gone up 30x from the day that we went public, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, but the, what we're, we were trying to look for the win-win-win solution. And what we didn't want to have done is we didn't want to have the board removed we didn't want to have them, t- they wouldn't, we didn't want them to take over our company and just put it up for sale to the highest bidder because who knows who would have bought us, our higher purpose, the values that we'd created, the, all the, so many people's jobs and livelihoods and the, the, what Whole Foods stood for, they were all at risk. And uh, so how do we preserve the essence of who we are, our higher purpose, the values that we were trying to manifest in the world? How do we protect that? So. That was the win-win-win solution that we, we were trying to solve. And so we looked at different possibilities. One possibility was to just fight Jana and just get into a fight with him. And that we had a whole campaign to do exactly that. But it would have been expensive. It would have taken us, it would have taken us a lot of time. We would have, they would have uh, trashed us completely in the media. Um, they, would have, they would have tried to exert pressure on our board. It was, it was going to be very bloody. And... and uh, something some, it was going to be a war and something to avoid if you could so but that was something we seriously considered and we did have a whole plan for that another alternative we considered was um selling it to friendly somebody that was friendly like a warren buffett um or we thought about taking it private and by that we would have ended up borrowing billions of dollars and buying <clears throat> and buying back our stock ourselves and basically taking it private. The problem with that strategy is we would have burdened ourselves with at least 10 or $12 billion of debt that we would have had to pay off. And, it, and we would have made the company very vulnerable that if we had a sustained economic downturn, like um, uh, say happened in 2008, 2009, the company probably would have gone bankrupt. So that was a risky strategy. Uh, we did talk to Albertsons, but we didn't think they were going to be a good fit for us. So that was that never really went anyplace. So then it was really about um, what would be a win-win-win solution. And I couldn't figure out what it was. It looked like we might have to have to fight with these guys. And uh, uh, one morning, I just woke up when I when I was lying in bed, and it just the idea just flashed in my mind. What about Amazon? Maybe they'd want to be interested in Whole Foods. I had met Jeff Bezos the year before. I had had a really good conversation with him. I really liked him. I'd always admired um, uh, that, that what, what Amazon was doing in retail and technology. And, and I knew they, I'd heard rumor they wanted to get into grocery. They had Amazon Fresh at that time. 
And I had heard a rumor that they really admired and liked Whole Foods. So we got in touch with them. We flew up there. We met with Jeff and three of his senior leaders on a Sunday afternoon one day. And uh, we had a really good connection. And in just a few days after that, they sent a whole team down to Austin. And six weeks after we had our first meeting with them in Seattle, uh, uh, we'd signed a merger agreement. So it was a very sort of whirlwind romance. But um, uh, that was a win-win-win. And we, I go into the details about how every one of our major stakeholders gained from the merger. Our customers, our team members, our suppliers, our investors, and the larger community that we're part of. Each one of those uh, uh, benefited from the merger. And I've certainly noticed that. Um, I know there have been several rounds of price reductions. And so that's been one of the key things that you've talked about both in the book and elsewhere. And I personally have noticed that myself. So it's definitely a benefit for uh, for customers and for the world to have uh, greater accessibility to these kinds of foods for sure. But I do want to ask you, like, what's it been like for you? I mean, you were the top dog of your company for 40 years. And, you know, you point out that even when you're the CEO, it doesn't mean that you're running everything, obviously. Um, you still have a board of directors and there's lots of people doing things independent of you. But you now have a boss, a senior executive at Amazon. So how has that adjustment been for you? And, and what's the effect been for you? Has it been a win for you as well? Well, I'm still the top dog at Whole Foods Market. <laughs> uh, if we want to use that metaphor. Um, but... You know, it, it's different, but it's not as different as people think because I've always had a board of directors I reported to. I've never, never been just uh, could do whatever the heck I wanted to do at Whole Foods. That's, that's a myth that, that people have. I always, leadership's a lot of it's about responsibility. It's not about power. I think that's a, a misunderstanding people have, at least in, in corporations. I felt mostly a responsibility to our customers and our team members and our suppliers and our investors. I, I mostly felt responsibility. I never felt I was, in, I was a servant leader of service to those, to all the stakeholders. So reporting, the only difference is, is that I have to check in with Amazon a lot more often than I had to check in with the board. And, and Amazon looks a lot deeper into the business than, uh, than the board ever did. And of course, in a lot of ways, we're integrating closer to Amazon. So Whole Foods is still independent, but we are getting knitted closer into Amazon from a technology standpoint. I love the extra discounts that I get when I use my Prime credit card at Whole Foods. That's a pretty sweet. Uh, that's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah, that is. The, I always tell people if you're a regular Whole Foods shopper or a regular Amazon shopper, you really should get the Amazon credit card because you're going to get 5% back at both Amazon and Whole Foods. And there's no, it's a no fee card. So that's yeah. 5% is a lot of money <laughs> over, over a year if you're doing a lot of shopping. Yeah, it is. And you know, um, uh, this is of course an endorsement free show, but I will say it's what I do. And I, I can, I can assure you that uh, I, I have appreciated it greatly. So thank you. <laughs> um, so let me just ask you, before we get into the topic, as you know, that is near and dear to my heart, we want to talk about animal welfare, we want to talk about alt meat, but just briefly, John, about the pandemic. So you've been in the news lately for saying that, um, for making some predictions about how you think grocery shopping will or won't change post-pandemic. So, you know, right now we're toward the end of 2020, but presumably the pandemic will end at some point. What do you think it's going to look like? for grocery shopping in general, not just at Whole Foods, but grocery shopping in general after the pandemic? Yeah, 
The Wall Street Journal put a headline out when I talked with those guys that <clears throat> fundamentally was um, not what I said. So I've, I always like the opportunity to correct that narrative. We have a comparable base of, uh, of subscribers as the Wall Street Journal. So sure, we <laughs> cor- correcting it here on Business for Good will uh, we'll assuredly correct the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the obviously since COVID hit, online shopping and home delivery has gone way up. I mean, our sales literally last quarter were 300% higher than they were a year before. Wow. So we've had a lot of business translate to go online. Um, And so I consider COVID to have been sort of an accelerant to people doing more online shopping. And I think when when COVID's over and people feel safe again, uh, we will return... I believe to very similar reality to what we had pre-COVID. I do not, I mean, think we're going to be human beings. They want to go to restaurants. They want to go to bars. They want to go to movies. They want to hug each other. They want to shake hands. They want to be humans. We're convivial tribal animals. And this this hiding out at home, trying to run away from a virus is... is uh, that's not going to be any kind of permanent state. And I actually do think, I'm very optimistic. I think we're moving past COVID right now. If you look at the statistics, the number of infections, the number of hospitalizations, and the number of deaths, deaths are all slowly trending down. So we're, we're beginning to get herd immunity in the United States, not as fast as any of us want. So I'm very optimistic about the future, but I could be wrong. We don't know. Good to be careful and safe. Any, anyhow, um, once we're... Some people will never return to shopping in stores or they won't shop as frequently because they've tasted, they like shopping online. They like the convenience of it. They like the, uh, they like a lot of things about it. And so the change is permanent, but it just won't be as big as it is today. I suspect probably, you know, if I'm making this number up, I don't have any studies or statistics. It's just a gut feeling. Probably half of the sales I'd say about a year from now or so, half of our online sales will have reverted to in, in-store shopping for the, all the reasons that I said. They'll still be shopping online. They're just people like shopping for food. I mean, not everybody, but if you're if you're into food, if you're a foodie, if you like to cook, if you're interested and passionate, you want to sample foods. You want to you want to you just you just like I like shopping for food. I do. I'm I admit it. I'm in this category myself. I love shopping for food, and I. I don't think I think a lot of people shop at Whole Foods are cooks and they like to shop for food and they they want to touch it they want to pick their own produce out they want to try new foods they want to they want to experiment so I, I think we're going to see you know we're never going to go back to pre-COVID but we're not going to stay at the level that we're at or it'll it'll go back down. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something, John. I know that you know my wife Tony, and she like you loves to go shopping for food or just going as a pastime walking through supermarkets and comparing prices, looking at different things. And uh, she has, uh, I mean, it would be the best date in the world for her if I just said, hey, why don't you think about going to four different supermarkets and just walking the aisles and comparing prices on like items? That would be like the most romantic thing I could do for her. Or it sounds like my kind of gal. Because uh, <laughs> when I travel around, anytime I visit a city, I always go look at, I look at, I look at farmers markets. I look at, I look at uh, supermarkets. I look at competitors. I always tour our stores, of course. Uh, one of one of my favorite things to do when I travel to other countries 
is check out the food scene. You're gonna you're gonna see different foods that you don't normally see, different merchandising methods. It's it's fun. I, I just it's to me it's like like your wife Tony. I I just like doing it. It's 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 uh, it's leisure a fun leisure activity for me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, well, speaking of things that are not leisurely for you, I know that you have, uh, in addition to running Whole Foods, also been very passionate about animal welfare, the treatment of farm animals especially. And uh, it can be a stressful topic, so we're not going to get into any graphic cruelty descriptions here, but you make a very compelling point in the book, and you say that uh, you feel like companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, they've made enormous strides for animals that you don't think could have been caused by charities, that charities, um, whether it be the Humane Society or others, just wouldn't be able to affect the type of change that companies like Beyond and Impossible are doing. So tell me, what do you mean by that? Um, where do you think that those type of companies play in the role of uh, the movement to help farm animals? Well, uh we do write about that in the book, so I'm not surprised you picked that up. And also, that proves you read the book, since that's not uh, front and center <laughs> of the book. You had, to, you had to dig deep to find that one. I can assure you I've read it word for word and loved it and, and, and really enjoyed it. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, so, of course, I'm a big supporter of animal welfare movements, and I served on the board of directors for the Humane Society of the United States for over a decade. I, I've donated to a variety of nonprofits, and they play a very important role for trying to get laws changed and raise consciousness about, about the cruelty of, of, uh, for farm animals, but for not just farm animals, for all kinds of animals around the world. It's, it's uh, yeah, we'll someday look back on what we've done to animals in the last hundred years or so and in horror, just like we look back on things that we've done in our past in America that we're ashamed of, we'll someday look back on the, what's happening to animals and, and, and with shame as well. So, um, however, the point is, is that uh, nonprofits can do a lot of good, they can, but also for-profit businesses can do a lot of good. And we used Beyond and Impossible as examples of that because by creating those plant-based meats, they've uh, a lot of people are eating less meat because they have a substitute that they like just as much or more, and that's most of the major changes that happen in the world will eventually they'll happen through capitalism. They'll happen through business innovations. Um, I mean, climate change, for example. Um, what Tesla's done and what other cars are, are car companies will do in the long term is, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll begin to increasingly move away from fossil fuels, not because we're making laws about it or nonprofits are doing lobbying or we're guilt tripping people, but because we'll have created automobiles that don't use fossil fuel energy. And we will eventually come up with solutions for our electrical system that produce more power and without using fossil fuels. So that's going to be the long-term solution to climate change, not um, it'll be innovation mostly through private companies that leads to the most lasting changes. And that's the same thing I think with, with animal, animal cruelty. I mean, um, in just the food sector, you can think about, uh, you know, what just just eggs and what they've done there and uh, 
even I think the biggest change is going to happen, and I know you're 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 with me on this one, Paul. Is I do think cell based meats are going to be absolutely a huge category. They'll transform our lives as we know it. I think I don't know, fifteen twenty years from now, a huge percentage of the meat that people eat will not be raised from farm animals, but they'll be basically they'll be grown in in I don't want to say labs. They'll be grown in factories that are that are growing growing the tissues. It'll people won't be able to tell the difference. It'll taste the same. It'll look the same. In fact, it could even be healthier because they might be able to to raise it, uh, grow this these tissues with less cholesterol or or less fat in some instances, more nutrients. There's a lot of things they can do, but I just think that's the future, and that innovation will do far more good for farm animals than anything else that's ever come before. Yeah, and you know, I, I certainly am a, a big believer in food technology to help animals. Um, I, I think that you're right, and uh, I know you were very kind and provided a good blurb for my book, Queen Meat, for which I, I certainly appreciate. And you know, I think it's interesting to look at, for example, if you go back to the late 1860s, the animal welfare movement really got founded by people who were very concerned about the treatment of horses on the streets of New York City and elsewhere. And the people who were doing that were campaigning for all types of better working conditions for the horses. They wanted to have, <laughs> you know, they wanted resting hours for them. They wanted watering stations for them. They wanted Sabbath days that the horses couldn't be worked at all. And then, of course, Henry Ford comes out and does more for horses than the campaigners of the nonprofits ever dreamt of doing. I mean, they weren't even dreaming of trying to free horses from being our laborers. And yet Henry Ford rendered the exploitation of horses virtually obsolete. And I really believe that the food technologies like what you're talking about, whether it be plant-based meat or clean meat, I really believe is going to uh, help to usher in a factory, a post-factory farming era of animals. And so I, I do want to ask you about this because I, I know you somewhat famously, John, have not been an avid consumer of plant-based meats yourself because you prefer to stick to a whole foods plant-based diet and I say Whole Foods with a little L, although I actually presume you shop a lot at Whole Foods Market as well. Um, But, you know, Whole Foods Market was arguably the catapult that helped launch Beyond Meat success, starting with the chicken strips and eventually by being the first store to put the Beyond Burger in the meat section of the supermarket. Uh, You mentioned Just Egg, which you all were a catapult for as well when that came out. So how do you see Whole Foods' role of expanding on the popularity of these plant-based meat and egg alternatives? Oh, I think we'll continue to be a catalyst for it because um, we'll be a launching place probably for cell-based meats when they're available as well. I mean, Whole Foods has always been interested in being on the cutting edge of the new food trends uh, of all types. And we, uh, the, the reality is that the plant-based movement is continuing to gain, gain momentum. And so it, it's more and more customers are interested in plant-based alternatives of all kinds. And uh, so I definitely think that's going to continue. And, and I'm, I'm very happy that Whole Foods is going to be one of the leaders in helping make those transitions. I mean, Beyond and Impossible are good. They're good products. With, whether they launch with Whole Foods, I mean, we, never, we, never, we don't even sell Impossible. But Beyond, if we hadn't launched at Whole Foods, they'd launch somewhere else. They would have been successful. We're, we're happy that we were able to, to aid their success. But I mean, Ethan did a great job. He was a visionary and a great entrepreneur, and he's 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 done some great great things. I'm very very happy for him and for Beyond. 
Yeah, for sure. And for the world, because their success has really done an enormity. And for the entire alternative protein space, I think it's really lifted, that tide has lifted a lot of boats. Um, And so I hope, John, when Whole Foods does start selling clean meat, when that day comes, that I will be the first customer in there to buy it. It would be a real honor. So uh, you let me know. Give me the advance warning when that's happening and I can show up. (laughs) Whatever the first door is, I'll be there. (laughs) You you better nag me on that one because I'm I'm not going to remember that. That's almost assuredly true. (laughs) Sadly, I think we got a few years before that happens. But I don't know. I think those guys are... um, uh, um, I'll tell you, I personally invested in Memphis Meats, and Whole Foods also made a, a venture investment in that. So I'm very hopeful that that company is gonna is not that far away from being able to launch something. But uh, I'm not in the loop. That's not a that's just a hope, not a prediction. Well, uh, uh, what would make me happier than for your hope to come to fruition very soon? Uh, so speaking of meat consumption, uh, you have indicated, and perhaps this is uh, a false headline, so I don't want to create news here, but you've indicated that during the pandemic that uh, meat purchases at Whole Foods have increased, which would make sense since meat consumption as a whole has dramatically increased during the pandemic. Um, so what do you think it'll take? I mean, to you know, before we have clean meat on the market, what do you think it'll take to actually reduce sales of meat, whether it be at Whole Foods or in the world in general? Like, what do you think are the strategies that would actually lead to fewer animals being raised for food? For food, it's tricky, and the reason it's tricky is is that um, human beings, the way we evolved, we are we are fundamentally addicted to calorie dense foods of all kinds, and by calorie dense foods. When we were evolving, we they were very rare. We mostly ate plants, and uh, they were tough, fibrous. They didn't have that many calories in them. We didn't have farming, and we just, you know, we ate not that much different probably than the way chimpanzees or the gorillas or the other higher apes ate. We spent a lot of time getting food, and we ate a really super high-fiber diet. And we ate animal foods whenever we could find them, and we could, we could they, they, I don't think that was a huge part of our diets, but... Um, uh, that was such a dense calorie base. So whenever we could get calorie density in any form, which wasn't easy to do when we were when we were up against it for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years during our our, our, our evolution, we like those foods. So meat is a very concentrated uh, source for calories, and protein, and and probably not in the old days, but in fat today for sure. Um, we like sugar and honey, and we like things that have a lot of calories in them, refined grains, uh, cheese, uh, ice cream, uh, candy. These are all very calorie-dense, so we are easily and quickly addicted to those type of foods. So um, people will not willingly want to cut down on their calorie density. It, I mean, America is now, I mean, it's staggering, Paul. We're 70% of adults in America are overweight. And the most recent data shows 42.5% of adults in America are obese. 42.5%. We're, clo- we're, not, we're not only a few years away from half of the <laughs> adults in America being obese. And one thing to think about with that is that, you know, when you look at what are the uh, confounding factors for people who get COVID that actually make them more susceptible to having serious problems, those are them. Those are the problems. They are the problems, and the, and the media doesn't want to report on that because it looks like you know you'd be judging people uh, for being obese. But there is a high correlation between obesity and diabetes, and obesity and COVID. So um, it's 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 sad. 
Right. Well, yeah. And just to be fair, not, not in contracting COVID, but having problems once you contract it. You contract it, but you know, if most people's immune system fights it off, right? And, but, but if you have a compromised immune system and you're, you're older, you're much more vulnerable to it, which is, which is, but anybody, I'm not saying that, I'm not, I'm saying that's a sad thing. I know the thing I've done during this pandemic to try to protect myself as much as possible is I've just really up, I mean, I've always been eating healthy for many years now, but I've really been eating healthy and I've, I've got my weight down to optimum and I'm really supercharging my immune system. I'm eating so many fruits and vegetables every day to get that immune system as strong as possible because I think that's our best defense ultimately. Yeah, I'm with you. I actually have a concoction that I have been recommending to my friends and family that is particularly repulsive. It's like garlic and ginger and oregano and all this other stuff. I'll send it to you. I'll include it in the show notes if anybody wants to see, but it's uh, it's a good uh, way to to kick COVID where it needs to be kicked. So don't say it's particularly repulsive. Okay, that's a bad introduction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's particularly healthy. Yeah, it's a very, very good way to get your immune system in shape. So, uh, but let, let me just go back to this question and give you an example then, because it's queer. Whole Foods was the first company to ever put a plant-based meat in the meat section. And it's queer. Studies have shown that putting meat, putting plant-based meat in the meat section, as opposed to being in, in either uh, like the frozen section or in the even in the produce section where it's often been like next to tofu, putting it in the meat section dramatically increased its sales. So are there other things that you think could be done by grocers that would actually have an effect? Because sure, people love meat, they want to eat meat. But you know, these products like Impossible or Beyond, they're pretty calorie dense too. They taste pretty good. So is there other things like in the design of a grocery store or other things that you think could be done that would actually impact the consumer behavior here? It's interesting. We think the reason why research shows that, because uh, it's counterintuitive, you would think that the people that would be buying the plant-based meats would be people that eat a lot of plant-based foods. But in fact, uh, it's not the vegans that are primarily buying it. Uh, uh, it's like myself, I don't eat those uh, the plant-based meats because I eat the whole foods. I, I like a black bean burger, but can I say it doesn't taste like a regular hamburger, but to me, it tastes really good. And I, I've, you know, I've evolved, I've been a vegan so long now, I don't have the same taste profile that others have. But what's very interesting, what we didn't anticipate, or I mean, I'm sure beyond anticipated, but Whole Foods did not anticipate that the real driver of those plant-based meats has been meat eaters, mostly millennials, and mostly they're environmentally concerned and secondarily the health of the animals. But it's mostly lowering their environmental and their carbon footprints that's been driving it. That's surprising when the research showed that. that uh, and so um, they don't care if it's in the meat section. They're happy to be there. I mean, if you're a hardcore vegan, you generally don't want that to be any place close. You don't want to go by the meat department because you find the whole thing kind of repulsive. So it depends upon uh, – at Whole Foods, we generally sell it. Sometimes we sell it in the meat department. We, we, we sell it in both places, basically. We also have a plant-based meat and plant-based cheeses, and we put it there as well. And so it's, it's, it varies depending on where it sells the best. But it has sold pretty well when we've located it near the meat department. Uh, and, I, and it's been millennials that are m- not necessarily plant-based that are buying it. So it's, it's been very interesting. It's, uh, it's almost a whole new category. It is a whole new category. It, that's one reason that 
that Beyond has done so well as a public stock. It's invented a new category, and uh, um, and it's it's here to stay. So it's very. I think it's very exciting. But what else? You ask me. What else can you do? Um, I mean, you're 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 constantly experimenting with. Uh, we found that for the most part, if you put the the Beyond is kind of an exception. If you put the plant-based cheeses in the cheese department, they tend to get lost and they don't necessarily do as well. We found that plant-based cheeses, they're not something that um, cheese eaters are looking for, but it's something that plant-based eaters are looking for. So we definitely have found that the plant-based cheeses do better when we put them with the other, with the other plant-based foods. Hmm. That's, that's really fascinating. I hadn't, I've never heard of nor even thought about that, but that's, uh, that's pretty riveting. One cool thing is that they're getting, we're getting some really skilled cheesemakers in the plant-based cheese world. If you go back, and that's the same thing with plant-based milks. For the, we're getting so much innovation there, uh, oat milk being the, the, big revel, the big revolution in the last uh, 12 to 18 months. Has just 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 flying out of our stores, and it it didn't even it didn't even exist a couple of years ago in the U.S. It's you know came over from from Europe when it came over here. So uh, we just try different things, and you see what you kind of see what works, and what 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 works you do more of, what doesn't work you do less of. Well, okay, let's talk about what works and what doesn't work because you have made a compelling point in the book. I want to just shift away for a moment uh, from uh, this topic I know that is near and dear to our hearts, your and my hearts about plant-based eating. Um, But, you know, you talk uh, persuasively in my view about the times when uh, the countries that have experimented with socialism versus countries that have experimented with what you call innovationism or what used to be called capitalism and uh, how much better the lot of people living in the latter category is. And I want to ask you just, you know, you have talked about this many times, so I don't want to force you to repeat yourself on that. But I want to ask you, you've made a compelling case that uh, basically having a free market has lifted huge numbers of people out of poverty. Literacy rates have plummeted, uh, uh, mortality rates have gone way down for infants. You've had lifespan for humans go way up. Like the lot of humanity as a result of business, uh, as a result of the embrace of business has lifted humanity into a a much better state than it was in a couple hundred years ago. Uh, I'm persuaded of that. But let me ask you, is that the same also for the planet? Has our success as business people, as a species, while it has done wonderful things for human beings, what about the rest of the planet? What do you think the track record of business is with com- when you talk about its impact on the planet and the other inhabitants who aren't human? The human species, like every other species on the planet, has evolved to seek to grow larger and bigger. And, and every species um, seeks its own self-interest, you might say. And it's it's sort of that's the way the DNA works. Um, humans just became enormously successful and we, we were so successful that we were able to expand all over the planet. And uh, we've always done environmental damage. If you, if, you, if you go back and you study what, um, what the anthropologists and the archaeologists and whatnot have shown us is that like when, when humans showed up as hunters and gatherers in Australia uh, 40,000 years ago or thereabouts, we pretty much wiped out the big fauna pretty quickly. Same thing happened in North America. Uh, so hunters and gatherers have always had an impact on the planet as well. Uh, and then agriculture had a bigger impact as we changed the 
the land to accommodate agriculture. And now industrialization has had even so the human impacts growing because our, uh, we're, A, there are a lot more people, and B, we're able to impact it uh, more than we used to be able to impact it when we were less technological. So I will grant the premise of the question to be basically true. Here's the difference. Human beings can, be, can and are becoming more conscious. We're becoming more aware of our environmental impacts. We're becoming more aware of how humanity is changing things and not always for the good, right? As we become more conscious, we can begin to choose differently. We can, if we're affecting the climate, well, we can begin to change our carbon footprint. We can innovate to, um, we're, human beings are very unlikely to voluntarily go back to being super poor and only living to be age 30 and being illiterate and being up against starvation. Uh, we're not, unless there's a post-apocalyptic time that that happens, we're not going to voluntarily do that. So we have to go forward. And to go forward, we're going to actually have to look for innovationism to help solve these problems. But what human beings are capable of is we're capable of learning. We're capable of becoming more conscious, more awake. And we are conscious of, we are able to choose differently. Um, you and I are both plant-based. We're very conscious of not harming animals, of, of lowering our environmental footprint. Of, uh, of, and that's just because we learned it. We, you, we, there was a point where we weren't doing that in our lives, and we learned more and we changed. And I think humanity is evolving at an incredibly fast clip culturally right now, more than we've ever evolved in our past. I mean, I just think how different the world is today Paul, I mean, I'm, 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 you know, I'm 67 years old. I've seen so much change in my lifetime. It's just mind-boggling. When I when I talk to younger people, they oftentimes don't think anything's changing. But hey, when I was just a little boy, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and uh, I, the Jim Crow laws were in effect when I was just a little kid, right? And uh, in my lifetime, I saw that disappear when I was still very young, when that began to disappear. But I did see it disappear. I've seen huge changes in the way uh, there was no environmental movement when I was a kid. There, women didn't have the same empowerment 50 years ago that they have today. All I know is the world in many ways is far better than it was 50 years ago. And there has been some environmental damage. So we could maybe argue that's not as good as it was. But you know what? In a lot of ways, it is a lot better. When I went to L.A. back in the early 80s, I mean, it was, it was like New Delhi is now. The, the air pollution was so intense, you couldn't see 100 yards, and your lungs hurt before you were there. And, you, and within 24 hours, you, I had my chest hurt. Same thing if I go to New Delhi or, or, or Chinese cities with the level of pollution so intense. But we, we cleaned that up. Uh, we've cleaned up a lot of our rivers. Um, our forests are re, are regain, uh, we're gaining forestry back in the United States. Uh, so in some ways, the environment in the United States is a lot better today than it was 50 years ago. In other ways, it's not as good. But the point is, we are capable of learning, we're capable of changing, we're capable of innovating. And we're, we, I really believe human creativity is sort of limitless and that we can solve all of our problems. Now, we may create some new problems, and that may be the human condition. We solve some problems, create new problems, and each new generation has to deal with the problems that come from the mistakes we've made in the past. That's kind of the human condition. Uh, but I would say the human condition 
is far better today than it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 1,000 years ago. Uh, and I think we're quite capable of solving our environmental issues. And I think we are solving them. So um, overall, I'm, I'm pessimistic in the short term right now because we're going through hell in America, but I'm still very optimistic long term. Yeah, I hear you on all of that. And I do think many ways environmentally we're better off today. Although, you know, the reality, of course, is that, you know, the World Wildlife Fund just put out a, a new study saying that compared to 1970, that there's about 70% fewer wild animals in existence than there were uh, just 50 years ago. And, you know, that's pretty sobering. Um, it's pretty sobering to know that we've decimated wildlife by about 70% uh, in, in half a century on the planet. Um, but hopefully through innovation, we can dramatically reduce our, our footprint on the planet and continue to, to make things better. We know a lot of that, as you know, is due to human beings keep capturing um, its habitat change. We're taking away the habitat for the wild animals. We're not, in some cases, we're, we're killing them, right? You know, elephants for their ivory, but for the most part, taking away their habitat and we're, we're ch chopping down forests and rainforests and we're planting, you know, we're planting crops for soybeans and corn to feed livestock animals. Right. Yeah. I think the great driver for deforestation is of course, either raising animals for food or growing crops to feed those animals for food. But so in terms of creating pasture, let me ask you a direct question then about pastures here, because you know, lots of founders of companies after their company gets acquired, they move on to newer pastors. You know, you look at Seth Goldman from Honest Tea, who is a past guest on this show. Um, you know, he, after Coca-Cola acquired them, he ended up really doing a lot more with Beyond Meat. And even now he's moved on from, from there to start a new company. Do you ever think about that for, you know, you said you're 67, but, you know, hopefully you still got another 30 or 40 years left. Uh, do you ever think about if there is a post Whole Foods chapter in your life at any point? Unless I die while I'm working in Whole Foods, there will be a post-Whole Foods uh, chapter in my life, maybe more than one chapter, I hope. Um, but if you're asking me if I'm going to make an announcement today about leaving, the answer, you'll be disappointed. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm still having fun at Whole Foods, and uh, but I mean... Eventually, I will leave. You know, it's been 42 years, so I definitely have had a good, long, a good long run. Um, and I, and I do have, I have a lot of things I'm interested in, a lot of things I still want to do. So, um, all I can tell you is that it's not today. It's there. It's, it's not yet. It's not yet. So, John, you've written some excellent books on business, but I'm sure that there are lots of either entrepreneurs or want-to-be entrepreneurs who are listening to you right now who would love to ask you what resources, in addition to your books, should they be consuming, whether it's speeches or books or anything else that you think would be useful for them if they want to start or join conscious companies? I mean, if they want to be entrepreneurs, I can make lots of recommendations. You should read books by other entrepreneurs. And... Uh, uh, one of the ones I always recommend is um, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, which is the story of, of, of Nike and how he built it from scratch. It's a great, great book. I, I just very well written. Very, very, he comes across very humble in that book. Uh, it, Such a great book. Reed Hastings of Netflix has just come out with a book. I haven't read it yet, but I just downloaded it. So that's out. Arthur Blank of Home Depot has also just come out with a book. So Con Conscious Leadership has got some serious competition right now. Charles Schwab came out with a book last year. So I, I like reading books about other entrepreneurs and hearing their stories. In terms of books to make you more conscious, I really think you're going to find that more in the spiritual self-development realm because ultimately that's inner work that you do. And most business is very 
go, go, go. It's about checklists and, and, and energy and you, you're in startup mode. You're working long hours. It's more, much more uh, exterior focused, whereas most of the growth to become conscious is more interior focused. And then you have to get, you have to get on a, you have to get on a path, so to speak, to, uh, and, and so I've read tons of books in that regard. Um, a, a book that I really recommend that is very, it's not a long book, but it's got great exercise in it is uh, Roger Walsh's book, Essential Spirituality. We do reference that a couple times in, in conscious leadership. So, um, but, uh, tons of other books and, uh, uh, you, you just, uh, that's all. I don't, I don't guess I make any other recommendations. Uh, maybe maybe path, uh, the path of path of heart is a, is a great book. So I, I, that's a, uh, Jack Cornfield wrote that book. That's a great book. Very cool. We'll include path of heart as well in the show notes. And then, so finally, John, uh, you know, there are so many ideas for companies to do good in the world, but are there any that you wish that somebody else would start? You know, you had your hands full for the last 42 years, but have you ever thought, oh, I wish there was a company that was addressing this problem that somebody else would start? I'll tell you what I wish there were a lot more of. I wish there were, um, we got a lot of plant-based restaurants that are popping up and, and I guess the market wants sort of comfort plant-based foods, uh, you know, uh, a lot, a, a lot, there's just a lot of junk food, plant-based foods now. Uh, and I wish there were a lot more super healthy restaurants that, um, are really, that are, that are whole foods, whole natural foods, you know, mostly organic, lots of beans, whole grains, sweet potatoes, vegetables, fruits, things like that. I, I find those to be extremely rare, and uh, it's very unfortunate. So I, I wish, I think that's a huge opportunity for people to open up chains that are really not just selling, you know, like veggie grill and selling burgers and hot dogs and fast food, but uh, restaurants that are really selling super healthy plant-based foods. I, I think that's a real gap in the marketplace. At least they get me as a customer if, if nobody else. Very good. Well, if you want John Mackey to eat at your restaurant, you know what type of a restaurant he wants you to start now. <laughs> so with that, John, I want to thank you for coming back on the show. Uh, your book, Conscious Leadership, Elevating Humanity Through Business is available for sale everywhere where books are sold. So go out and download or order your copy. And John, please know that I and so many other people will be rooting for your success. And we appreciate all that you're doing to spread the good word about how business can be a great force for good in the world. Thanks, Paul. Hey, when we get past, when we get post COVID, we got to figure out a way to connect up in person. That'd be fun. I look forward to that. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to making it happen. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.